Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is August 10th, 2018. We have a very special guest, the editor-in-chief of Politico, Blake Hounshaw. Um, But first of all, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much, Blake. Thanks for having me. It's the first time I've been described as very special in a long time. Well, let's try to live up to that billing, I guess. Um, So I want to start with I'm, I'm torn between, you know, giving one of these 35,000 foot looks at American politics and, of course, being obsessed with these specific news cycles. So let's uh, let's kind of split the difference here and talk about uh, the the weekend review, the biggest stories, including what we learned from the special elections. Uh, the uh, the of course, uh, uh, Republicans are you know, you know, somewhat relieved that they didn't lose that special election in Ohio 12. But um, I don't see a lot of good news there for Republicans. So just give me your take on what, if anything, we've learned in the last week about uh, the way the political landscape is shifting. Well, keep in mind that Ohio 12 is like a rock-ribbed Republican district, right? I mean, it's barely fallen into Democratic hands since like the 1920s, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's a plus seven. Uh, the Cook Political Report rates that as a plus seven Republican district. Trump won it. Um, so I, I think like, you know, there's something a little silly about the expectations game in politics, right? Like it's not like, you know, it's not like horseshoes, right? You either get the seat or you don't. But on the other hand, I don't think if I were a Republican, uh, I would be, you know, sitting comfortably thinking, oh, we're, we've got this House thing locked up. Um, the fact that the Democrats came so close in a district like that, I think, should be alarming to Republicans. And I think the broader story of what's happening right now is we're seeing um, a collapse of Republican support in the suburbs. And that, I think, has got to concern Republicans for the long term, not just for these midterms, because what you're seeing, I think, is it's been predicted for a while. It didn't really happen in 2016, I think, because of Hillary Clinton's flaws as a candidate. But you're seeing uh, college-educated Republicans start to migrate toward the Democrats, and especially women. And that's why I think you're seeing really uh, a surge of support for women candidates um, across the board. Yeah, you have some numbers up uh, at, at at Politico that are really quite stunning. Uh, Franklin County, a 23-point shift from 2012. Uh, at, you know, at T-Berry, the, the former Republican incumbent there, got 57% in, in 2016. Balderson got 35%. In Delaware County, T-Berry got 72% in 2016. Balderson won but he dropped 17 percentage points. I mean, that if if that pattern holds, uh, that is not good news. There's something like, what, uh, 68 Republican-held uh, House seats that are less Republican than Ohio 12. So, uh, you know, just, just do the math there. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I was chatting online with Josh Holmes the other day, and, and Josh is a smart guy. He's Mitch McConnell's sort of a right-hand uh, man for electoral politics. He, he runs a pack, And his argument was we can't read in too much from this one district because there's kind of a confluence of nightmare factors for the GOP. But I, I tend to think that you're you're right, that, that really we're seeing this kind of broad secular effect across the country. Um, the pattern is pretty clear in all these special elections. You know, Trump had that tweet saying, well, we won, what is it, eight out of 10 or nine out of 10? Mm. But yeah, but like those are supposed to be gimmies, right? Like you won them by squeakers. 
Um, so I, I think that you know certainly the the Democrats have a really good shot at taking the House, and um, I think they can. The, yeah, okay. I think they can pull off some some gains for Republicans in the Senate. I don't know if Democrats can take the Senate given what the map looks like for them. Yeah, that that's that's much more uh, troubling. But but on on the House, there there does seem to be more pressure. Give, give me your sense of there's more pressure on Nancy Pelosi to you know perhaps step aside, which I'm guessing she's not going to do. But uh, you have quite a number of Democratic candidates around the country, including Danny O'Connor, who said they won't support her. So give me your sense of uh, Nancy Pelosi as a as a plus minus whether or not there's going to be any any movement there. Well, you know, it's it's funny. We we did a profile and sat down with Pelosi in January for the magazine, and she was pretty adamant, like, I'm not going anywhere, you know, over my dead body. Um, you're going to have to drag me out of here by the heels. But um, I think that she seems to have made peace with the idea that these folks running are going to distance themselves from her, I think, given how many ads we've seen over the years with, with Pelosi, um, it, it's clear that she's a, a motivator for, for Republicans. Um, but a lot of these guys have determined that it's it's less risky to cross her and say they won't vote for her um, than to embrace her and possibly lose their elections. Mm. I see the president is tweeting about uh, the NFL again this morning. Um, this is something that I think we could probably e- expect because this has been one of the issues that uh, is, is, is that's sort of one of his go-to issues, right? I mean, when 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 there's nothing else going on, he's got to sort of throw something out, a little bit of red meat, which again has become the the the, the cliche. Um, but uh, there have been suggestions. He's 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 told some of his uh, his compatriots uh, reportedly uh, that he really likes this issue. That he thinks this issue of going after the NFL players works for him. Do you think he's right? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's like a lot of things that it, it plays well to his base. Um, I, I have to admit, I didn't think this issue was going to be still around um, in August of 2018. I thought we had sort of ended it last year, but it seems like a lot of the players are, are still uh, unhappy about the NFL's policy. And you've seen candidates in a number of races kind of pick up the baton from Trump and also run on the NFL of all issues. Uh, we did a story a couple of weeks ago down in Florida, uh, this place called The Villages, I'm sure you've heard of mm-hmm. it which is a, a traditional Republican stronghold right in the middle of the state, sort of north of Orlando. And we were we wanted to talk to, it's a big retirement community, about 100,000 people. We wanted to talk about, you know, issues of resonance to that community. We thought we were going to go there and hear a lot about protecting Social Security and Medicare. And, you know, it's interesting that Trump really kind of bucked Republican positions on that. Um but all they wanted to talk about was like the NFL. So it's clearly mm. it's clearly resonating in places like that. Um, you know, it, it, it has a, an undeniable kind of racial tinge to it. Um, and I don't think anyone would disagree that with that and with immigration, Trump has kind of uh, played in those arenas. Um, and that's a big part of his support. But um, the question really is, is Trump's base enough? I mean, in recent years, American politics has has been sort of all about turning out your own base. But if Republicans are leaving the party, identifying as independents, I don't know that we're getting a true picture of what his real support is if we're just looking at polls, because 
it's just taking a percentage of a dwindling pond. Yeah, the, the of course Republicans are really counting on the Democrats uh, to uh, uh, to be scary enough that they will take those suburban voters and, and and at least you know push them back into the Republican you know category. Of course, you know, and every time a Democratic socialist uh, is in the news, um, you know they they think they're scoring points. Uh, uh, if uh, every time a Democrat suggests abolishing ICE, they think this is this this works for for them. Um, so, you know, I've, I've learned over the years never to underestimate the ability of the Democratic Party to blow an election like <laughs> this. Is there, I mean, right, no, know, how, how much anxiety is there on the part of the Democrats that, you know, guys, you know, some of this, some of this this rhetoric is exactly what is not going to work in getting some of those swing voters to, to, you know, to pull your lever? No, exactly. I've been saying that this is like the midterm election that nobody wants to win. <laughs> um, you know, the economy is humming along and. Uh, I think a lot of Republicans would be happy if Trump would just, you know, go to Bedminster for the rest of the, for the rest of the season, and and someone, if Melania could hide his phone, you know, um, they'd, they'd sleep a lot better at night. And the Democrats, you know, with with folks like uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, um, who's not even been elected yet, and she's measuring the drapes in Congress and sort of gallivanting around the country and giving sort of disastrous interviews where. It, she doesn't really come off very knowledgeable. Um, there's that there's that balance between like the energy. She certainly fires fires people up on the left, and then I think there are a lot of people in these kind of red state districts that just cringe and just don't want to have anything to do with her. Um, the abolish ice thing. It's fascinating. Um, Corey Bliss, who runs a Republican super PAC that plays in a lot of these House races, he's had polls that show that I, I think it's either seventy thirty or eighty twenty. Uh, against abolishing ICE. So they think that's a great issue. And, and Republicans were so happy when the family separation issue uh, kind of went away as a, a, a political issue and was supplanted by abolish ICE because, you know, fam- family separations played terribly for uh, for Trump and for Republicans, which is why they, they had to trim their sails on that. Um, but abolish ICE is just as bad for Democrats. Yeah, absolutely, Toxie. This was actually, a, speaking of other uh, wedge issues, this was a rather extraordinary week on the immigration front. We got the report that there, uh, that uh, Stephen Miller is cooking up a plan to make it harder for green card holders to become citizens if they've ever received any kind of government uh, support. And then, of course, you had Laura Ingram um, saying in her out loud voice what I think a lot of Trumpists have been saying, you know, that that America has been changed demographically. And then I, I, I'm always hesitant to do this sort of thing because it feels like kind of a gotcha, but kind of interesting timing for Melania's parents to become U.S. citizens, given all the rhetoric about chain migration. So I don't know whether you want to just jump in on any of those. I, you know, I, I started the morning thinking I'm not going to talk about uh, Melania's parents because I mean, you know, Hey, this is great. You know, another, you know, immigrant uh, success story becoming citizens, but it does seem a little ironic, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely an easy, you know, way to point out hypocrisy. But I, I think that the broader story, Charlie, is that, you know, most of us are here because of chain migration or whatever you want to call it, family migration. Um, my grandmother came on a boat from Sweden, you know, and um, Stephen Miller's family, you know, <laughs> they're immigrants historically. Trump's family, you know, comes from Germany <laughs> on his uh, grandfather's side. So, you know, we're, we are 
America didn't exist until right. you know the late 18th century, and everyone here is deprived of somewhere else. Um, so, whatever you think about what's the right balance of, of uh, immigration now, you know, it, it's just very easy to, to point to someone's family history. You know, even a guy like Steve Bannon, I'm sure, has uh, immigrants. Yeah, we all we all do. I mean, that's that's you know, and and, and everyone can tell those stories. I what did you make of all of the uh, outrage about Laura Ingram's comments where she said, you know, that she, you know, basically implied that she no longer loves America because of the demographic changes that were forced, uh, you know, that have that have occurred because of uh, illegal and legal immigration. I, I, you know, I mean, I, I thought it was, you know, a pretty clear statement, naked statement of, you know, ethno nationalism and nativism. But it really is not any different than an articulation of what what Donald Trump has been arguing and pushing in the essence of his policy. You know, when he talks about taking America back and all of those things that I didn't really hear her say anything that really is not a an articulation of, frankly, what is the dominant ideology of the administration? Yeah, I mean, she just said the quiet part out loud, right? I mean, that's right. the subtext of make America great again. Like, it's- yeah. It's partially about, you know, restoring the economic uh, boom years of the post-war period. But part of that is also like a sort of a white suburban nuclear family America that, you know, isn't here anymore. And uh, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that America is so special and unique that we can't fall prey to the same kind of um, tribalism that has plagued Europe for centuries, um, plague the rest of the world, like throughout human history. You know, I, I just think as America's demographic mix changes, that's inevitably inevitably going to scare some people. And when when you have, you know, a lot of identity politics on the left, there's inevitably going to be a reaction on the right. If, 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 I, if I'm like, you know, uh, defining myself as some sort of, uh, by, my, by my ethnic makeup, by my sexual identity, people who define didn't really define themselves before are going to say, well, who am I? I'm a white male. I'm a 40-something white male. I think it hardens people's identities and it, it, it provokes a backlash. And, and we can talk about it, we can condemn it, but I think we're looking at kind of a larger force uh, at work here, and uh, history suggests that uh, we're in for some dark years. Boy, I, I, I completely agree with you on all of that. The the the, the notion that somehow uh, the, the America is immune from those historical trends, that somehow we are so special that, uh, that, that none of the things that have happened around the world can happen to us. And I, I do think that this is one of the, the, the challenges of the time we're living in, is to is to realize that uh, uh, we, we, we don't have grounds to be complacent, that somehow this is just going to roll over over us. Also, I did want to get your sense of all of this um, I, because I, was, I, I got a little beat up on on all of this. Somebody said it was you know, I was asked on a cable television show. So was this was this racism? And I said, well, it's it's nativism. It's you know it's raw ethno nationalism. Is it racism? Well, um, you know, I would, let me put it this way. I, I think it's if you were trying to just dis- to draw a distinction between what Laura Ingraham was saying and right. what, like a Richard Spencer sort of open white nationalist was saying, I don't know that I could really give you a very clear answer of what's different about them. I'd say that like Spencer is more kind of crude and, uh, uh, you know, 
he's not gilding the lily. I think Laura Ingraham was walking pretty close to that line. Yeah, I, so, I, I'm pretty much where you are on this one. For it, like I think it's it's something that wasn't in the mainstream, at least this overtly before. And now you've got you know the most popular television news network in America broadcasting this stuff, and that's great. Yeah, you're shifting the window of what is acceptable. Um, and then this is where thought leadership, I think, you know, comes into play. You know, there's always been a nativist, you know, stream in, in American politics. I mean, going way back into the 19th century. But I, I've argued, and you feel free to disagree with me on all of this, you know, on the right, you know, this sort of, you know, nativism, eth- ethno-nationalism has always been there, but I describe it as a recessive gene. There's always been the Buchanans out there. There's always been, you know, those folks. But but there have been times when you've had thought leaders on the, in the Republican Party who really pushed back against that and said, no, we should not be afraid of this kind of diversity and multiculturalism. But those voices are really being drowned out right now. So what what had once been a recessive gene, it's always been there. You know, is now, as you point out, it is now the the you know saying it out loud, and people are being encouraged to go, yeah, you know, darn right, yeah, you know, this this we we have lost our country because of these people coming in. Yeah, no, I mean, it's you know, I I think there there are times in the history of the country when um, different parts of the country pick up the nativist banner, you know, like Robert Taft, sort of you know, isolationism before World War Two was kind of like the dominant strain in the Republican Party at the time until when the world came along and then FDR kind of crushed the Republican Party for a while. Uh, and Richard Nixon was, you know, for all of his flaws, he was a real um, cosmopolitan internationalist kind of guy. And even though he, he kind of used some issues like communism um, in a way that a lot of folks on the left found objectionable, you know, he, he really wasn't afraid of the world. He embraced it, and uh, he found it a fascinating place. And so the stage that the Republican Party of his ilk and his era played on. Um, but you could go back to, you know, the, the Civil War era Republican Party, um, the party of Lincoln. And even then, you had, um, you had uh, this willingness to play against, you know, other immigrant groups like uh, sure. Mm-hmm. So there's there's always everyone's always got a bogeyman, right? Like the left um, for many years was the one that was stoking fears about trade and you know the the Chinese taking our jobs and that sort of thing. And, and Trump has recognized, I think, uh, in a politically savvy way that that was great politics. I mean, what the Democrats used to do. Remember Bill Clinton? He ran on. Uh, we're going to crack down on Chinese human rights in 1992, and he didn't really do anything about it in office because you really can't. Um, so there's always this uh, willingness of political entrepreneurs to to make to make hay out of these issues, and Trump has just doubted up to 11 where other folks might have been in a seven. Yeah, you 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 made you made reference by the way to an interesting historical footnote that that I was I've just been reading some biographies of Abraham Lincoln and by the you know the Republican Party used to be the party of Lincoln, but it is interesting that that he was very possible in the 1850s to be very strongly anti-slavery but also anti-immigrant that the, those were those were not contradictory, 
And I think that that is interesting. Also, just fast forwarding quite a bit, uh, you know, you think about Ronald Reagan's position about uh, immigration and the things that he said about immigration. You know that he would be regarded as very much a squishy rhino these days on that particular issue. I also want to ask you about the uh, the Paul Manafort trial, which has been just this. It's it's been a big week for for swampiness in Washington. I'm loving it. between between Manafort and Gates and Congressman Chris Collins, I mean, this is, you know, um, the, the the GOP really has kind of a, a swamp problem. But but I want to ask you about a piece that you wrote just a few weeks ago that I found really interesting. You had been and, you know, feel, if, if I mischaracterize this in any way. You had been so you had been somewhat of a, a skeptic about Russia Gate, whether or not there was anything there. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in you know, but you wrote a piece a few weeks ago saying why I am no longer a Russia Gate skeptic. What changed your mind? And and are and are, you, and are, you, are you still you know in in that in in that place now? Yeah, I mean, I so I wrote that first piece um, back in February when when I was just looking at a lot of these stories that came out, kind of breathless. I thought we're we're hyping a lot of things. There are a lot of stories that where you you sort of you hear that oh this Trump campaign operative met with Russian officials, and then you sort of scroll down a couple paragraphs, and then you realize oh they're talking about Carter Page. <laughs> you know, it's kind like, of a clown. Just, yeah, you know the guy. I just don't. I think he's a few card short of its full deck and i just can't see him as the mastermind of this you know vast international conspiracy um but then you just look at trump's behavior and it's just hard to explain the way you know the, the summit with putin played out uh rejecting all the advice of his administration you have incidents like that famous like do not congratulate (laughs) (laughs) before his call with putin on his election um the way he just seemed kind of um sniveling and like you know subservient trump you know this is a guy that has to alpha roll everybody he interacts with and there's one man in the world that he doesn't do that with and it's vladimir putin and it's Bizarre, and I don't think you know people in the administration even understand it, but they're certainly working around it. Um, you know, since I wrote that second piece um, announcing my lack of skepticism, <laughs> um, the administration has, I think, recognized that oh, this Putin summit was a political disaster for us. They they didn't expect, I think, the kind of um, Republican, in particular, reaction. Mm-hmm. You know, you've seen the Senate start to spin up a bunch of bills to tie the president's hands. Um, you know, and, and so I think they have wisely recognized that, they, they, you know, mm-hmm. the American people in the Republican Party don't want to be a pro-Russian party. Um, now, whether the president is going along with that grudgingly, willingly, you know, he's he has sort of embraced this, it seems, and touted the fact that they've been tough on Russia in a lot of ways. Um, but then you get stories like this story in the New York Times today about how Bolton, uh, the national security advisor, had to kind of sneak around and lock in this agreement with NATO before Trump met with NATO because they were worried he was going to blow it up. So I don't think that uh, I'm being paranoid mm. seeing that there's something here if a guy like John Bolton thinks there's something weird about Trump's relationship with NATO and with Putin. 
Yeah, the, the well, the Weekly Standard uh, has a has a really strong editorial about the 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 Trump the, the Trump Tower meeting, which you know points out you know you you know the the defense, of course, is there was nothing there, nothing happened. Well, then why were there so many lies? Why was there so much attempt to to cover well, it, it up? There's something there. The goalposts keep shifting. It's like yeah, right. well, we were just meeting about adoptions. Well, actually, it was about you know getting dirt on Hillary. In, but nothing came of it. But if there, if anything came of it, then it's fine because it's normal and and everybody does it. And but there was no collusion. But actually, Hillary colluded, and she should go to jail for it. You know, so it, it's like this shifting kind of political flares that they send up, and it just you know anybody who studied you know lying has to know that there's <laughs> shifty going on here, right? I think we. I'm going to make a prediction. I think we're we're five minutes away from certain websites writing that. Uh, yeah, yes, there was collusion, and it was wonderful. It is great. We ought to be grateful for it. That um, we're, we're going to go all the way. We're going to go all the way to uh, to to all of that. The the Devin Nunez tape that came out uh, the, this week that was broken by by Rachel Maddow shows uh, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. You know, essentially telling re- Republican donors that uh, that they're still going to try to uh, impeach Rod Rosenstein because we are the only people basically who can defend and, and protect the president. Uh, I wasn't as shocked by that as other people because, you know, isn't that what Devin Nunes has been doing, you know, publicly up front for months now? Yeah, no, I wasn't surprised by that. But what I think he was doing in that uh, recording in that speech is he was at, he was engaging in a little bit of kabuki, right? Like he was saying, well, I really wanted to take down Rosenstein, but I couldn't because of the stupid Senate, you know? <laughs> it's sort of making excuses for why this was really just all political theater and he wasn't really, you know, the, the, the Ryan's not on board with impeaching Rosenstein. Um, you know, it seems like the, the Trump administration is not on board with getting rid of him. So, uh, this was kind of a political uh, political show. It seems like these things are well-timed before these August recesses so that people can go back to their districts and raise money off of issues like that. Yeah. Well, so so what, he was kind of making an excuse for why they weren't going to do anything about it. What, what, are, what are, your, are your sense? I mean, none of us actually know what Bob Miller, uh, Mueller is doing, and of course that's something we all ought to remind ourselves we don't know. Um, but the clock is clearly running, and there was a. There seems to be a sense that uh, once you hit sort of the sixty days before the the midterm election, there's probably not going to be anything that will happen beyond that. Um, well, are you hearing what, anything different? That's or? what Rudy Giuliani is saying, right, right? Right. I mean, there's a guy who works for the Mueller um, investigation in. Peter Carr. He's the spokesman for it. The guy has the easiest job in the world. <laughs> Email him, you say, hey, what's going on with this? And he says, no comment. Like, that's what he does all day. He's just like, you know, that Dikembe Mutombo commercial where he's just like swatting down the request. Like, mm-hmm. no. And, you know, they're not leaking. So this is all coming from the Trump defense side. Um, you know, if you think about it, I could be wrong here, but if you think about it rationally, if Mueller is really the kind of guy who does not take politics into account, unlike Comey, who I think was a real political mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, Mueller, I would think he was just going to get things ready when they're ready. You know, when he's ready to file charges or send a report to Rosenstein, he's going to do it. And if he starts to sort of calculate when the politics are right, 
then I think it's a slippery slope, and that's when you get into Comey territory. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure that that ghost is hanging over everybody's head. How how badly that was all handled. So, as the editor in chief of Politico, I just want to just step back. You know, during this particularly bizarre age that we live in, mm-hmm. right now, what intrigues you the most? What is the question that you find yourself thinking about when you wake up in the morning? I mean, I think the big question that uh, I wrestle with every day is uh, I, I sort of toggle between wild optimism about America and like deep pessimism, right? Like, are we are we in a ditch right now, or um, are we living through this sort of fascinating time when there's all this change? And a lot of it is, has nothing to do with politics, you know, like the the fact that I, I grew I was born in 1978. And um, I first logged on to the internet in high school, right? And I got my first cell phone when I was a junior in college. And now I've got a computer in my hand, I'm talking to you right now, mm-hmm. that has more computing power than, you know, the huge IBM PC I used to write my papers when I was in high school. Um, and that kind of stuff is incredible. Like, you know, in my lifetime, I'm going to see you know, amazing advances in uh, the lifetime, uh, how long people live, um, nutrition, all these things that I think are wonderful. And then you look at our politics and they're, you know, they're just nasty, um, so partisan, you know, it's, it's so hard to get anything done. I think a lot of people across the country are disgusted with it but then you know they go about their lives and a lot of people's lives uh, are better than ever that is that's an intriguing question that you bring that up the disconnect between our politics and the the american public because it, every once in a while i'll go out and i'll you know speak to a group or meet with a group of just regular ordinary people and there's always a moment a little bit of a shock that they don't sound and look like my twitter feed that they're actually reasonable people. Right. They're they're not obsessed. They're actually willing to listen to arguments and change their minds. And and it's 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 a good corrective to say, okay, uh, not everything that happens in politics is a reflection. On the other hand, of course, we do get the kind of you know leaders that we we deserve. And my concern, of course, my concern is is really, you know, Donald Trump is Donald Trump, but but you know, will this period change us as a country? And I think we started off talking about you know immigration. You know, does it change the norms? You know, one of the things that intrigues me is is does anybody understand what the rules are in politics or anymore? What the standards are, and whether the American people are really who we thought they were. And I don't know. I I do think that. Steve Bannon was right when he says, or who was, uh, it was really Breitbart, who said that politics is downstream from culture, but also politics affects culture. And right now it's not affecting it in a very positive way. Yeah, I sort of look at it like, a, like one of those drawings of the snake eating its own tail, right? <laughs> An Ouroboros, they call it. Um, okay, that's one of your darker uh, moments when you're thinking that way, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, you know, it's amazing. I was I was just out in the the high Sierras in California for five days, off the grid, no cell service, um, just hiking around the mountains. Um, and it was like America's amazing. Look at this place. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I got back to civilization, I, I picked up my phone stupidly. I logged into Twitter, and you know, the president of the United States is having a Twitter fight with LeBron James. <laughs> 
and <laughs> I turned it off. Um, and I think a lot of Americans feel that way. Like they go about their lives, and then you know they turn on the TV, and then there's some stupid uh, you know fight going on, and they turn it off. And the question is, like, mm-hmm. is that are people going to tune into politics to try to fix our problems, or are they going to tune out because they figure out oh, the hell with it? You know, uh, I think we're going to have to see what kind of turnout there is in November, and then you know, 2020 is going to be a huge pivotal election as well. Yeah, no, I, I think that tuning out, I can't take it any more factor, um, deserves a little bit more attention. So I'm intrigued by this. You actually went off the grid for five days. You did not look at your phone. I mean, I, I think my hands would start no- shaking and, and, and I'm not the editor in chief of Politico. I mean, I, I think I would, I think I would have to be locked in a room like cold Turkey or something. Yeah, no, I mean, I had to force myself to do it, right? Because, like, normally I go on vacation and I'm sort of still glued to my phone because, you know, I'm just fascinated by politics. It's it's not just my job, it's also, like, my hobby, right? Right. So, <laughs> but, you know, for, for my own sanity, I have to check out once in a while, and sometimes you have to take extreme measures to do it. <laughs> Well, that is an extreme measure. So, what 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 puzzles you the most? What 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 about the current political environment that you you feel sometimes? I just don't get this. Well, so I think about. Do you remember sort of the heady days of the early Iraq War and the, the oh yeah around Iraq War about how we're going to reshape the society and we're going to kind of like boost the moderate uh, Islamists and, and so forth. Um, we're going to, you know, spend money on this cleric and you know, we're, we're going to change the politics. We're going to create free newspapers and that sort of thing. Well, think about how hard it is to reshape American culture and politics. And you see what kind of folly it was to think that we could change a country of just 25 million people like Iraq. America's a country of 330 million people. Um, The idea that we could could kind of manipulate our way out of this sort of political cultural ditch we're in right now seems really daunting to me. So to me, the biggest puzzle in American politics right now is like, how do things get better? And is there anything that people can do to shape that? It's going to take a generation, I think, to get where we are. When you figure that out, could you drop me a note? Yeah. Could you, could you just let me know? Just ping me, just something like that, because uh, that that is the really that that is the hard question. How, how do we unravel all of this? How do we undo all of this? I know there are people who think that politics is a is a pendulum that swings back and forth. I I hope they're right about that because I I have this sense that we're all maybe we're more like a ratchet that that every time we lose something and you know destroy a norm or you know break you know br- break some some tradition that it's harder to get back and that's why I agree with you. Blake, thanks so much for the time this morning. We really, really appreciate it. We really uh, are looking forward to this partnership between the Weekly Standard and uh, and Politico. So thanks for joining me this morning. Thanks, Charlie. It's my pleasure. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday and we'll do this all over again.